0: The following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the land who is was slain may receive the full reward. His sufferings. For more information about us, please visit GCCLasCruces.com. Brothers and sisters, I had every intention to get back into Second Peter this morning. Uh, it's only three verses that we were going to be covering, but as I was talking with some brothers yesterday, those verses are uh, weighty and heavy with, um, much controversy. Um, and I want, I needed an, an extra week, so spare me, be gracious with me. Uh, I needed one more week to kind of study this and hopefully next week I can have a better understanding and bring you the word from second Peter chapter one, uh, two verses one to three. So today I, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 25 this morning. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 10, verse 1, though, so we can get the context of our passage. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We come to this pivotal point in the letter to the Hebrews. The so what of the letter. This is identical, perhaps, to... The beginning of romans chapter 12 where the apostle paul after 11 chapters of pure gospel truth letting the romans know letting those believers know what god has done for them in and through the perfect life the substitutionary death and the triumphant resurrection of christ after explaining the glorious reality of god's electing grace his propitiating love after explaining the sweet gift of justification by faith alone in Christ alone and our new and permanent standing with God in grace that will never be taken away from us, after tracing our salvation all the way back to God's free, saving, electing grace, he then turns to them in chapter 12 and says, Therefore, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present yourselves Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That's the so what in the letter to the Romans. Similarly, you find the same thing after three chapters in Ephesians of what God has done for us in Christ and through Christ and by Christ. Raising us to newness of life, giving us the spirit as a guarantee of our future inheritance. He then turns to the Ephesians in chapter four and says, therefore, I urge you, I beseech you, I am calling upon you to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In all humility, gentleness, lowliness of mind, preserve this unity, right? The first three chapters were about God creating this unity, this this new people, this church out of darkness, bringing them into marvelous light, Christ, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, and by God's free electing grace that predestined us and by the spirit being poured out upon us, God unified a people. He created a people to be one. And so Paul isn't saying necessarily create unity. He says maintain that unity. God, by his grace, created a united people. Jew and Gentile, he's broken down the wall of hostility and he's made us one. And so we're all one in Christ. And then we get to the therefore. Maintain that unity. Well, this is the pivotal place in the letter to the Hebrews. This is where after 10 and a half chapters of pure gospel truth showing the supremacy and the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ over against every angel, over against the old covenant, the old sacrificial system, over against every priest, even a long line of, Priests, godly priests. He says that Jesus is infinitely better than every angel, infinitely greater than every angel, infinitely greater than the old system. Now, to give you some background, the believers here, known as, that we know as the Hebrews, were being tempted to turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been marginalized by the Jewish community by the way, many believe at the time this was written, this was before 70 AD when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem and obviously the temple. And so you read about the priesthood continuing on in their day. There, there, there was still an altar, there were still sacrifices happening at the time Hebrews was written. And so imagine coming out of that, coming out of that whole system, you were raised in it, you were reared in it. And now you've come to learn that there's only one sacrifice that puts away sin, and that's Christ's sacrifice. And it happened already, once and for all. But yet, those you grew up with are still going to the temple, are still going to the synagogues. You begin to feel like an outsider. Add to that the persecution that began to happen. We read here in chapter 10 about the plundering of their property. We read about harsh treatment towards the church because of their allegiance and their loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they were being called back into this old system, called back into the old system of worship. And so what do you do to a people who are being tempted to go back, and if not fully going back, tempted to at least have one foot in Christ and one foot in the old ways of Judaism? What do you do? Well, as a wise pastor, as a wise um, shepherd, we don't know who the writer is. Some say it's Paul. I don't necessarily believe it's Paul. But what do you do? You show the surpassing worth and supremacy and greatness of Christ. You exalt him in his work. He is the radiance of God's glory. You're going to turn away from him? You exalt him as the creator and sustainer of the universe who upholds All reality by the power of his word. Are you going to turn away from him? You exalt him as the final word from God. In the past, he says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken decisively once and for all in his son. Are you going to turn away from him? And oh, by the way, you're going to go back to the priests who are still running to and fro in the temple offering sacrifices. Well, guess what? Your high priest in heaven, after he made purification for sins, he sat down. He's done. He sat down. There's no more work to be done. There's no more offering to offer. There's no more sacrifice for sins. His precious blood was poured out on the cross for our sin. And that blood propitiated the wrath of Almighty God. That blood extinguished for every believer the flames of hell for us. And so you have these constant exhortations in the letter. Don't, don't waver. Continue to hold faster confidence in Christ. He who promised is faithful. And then he goes into chapter 11, which We'll come next to show that all the believers in the Old Testament, they had a struggle as well, but they, they endured because God who had promised is faithful and remains faithful to his people. And so what we have here in verses 19 through 25, the writer calls their attention to two eternal possessions And then he sets before them three consequential exhortations. In other words, exhortations that flow as a result, as a natural outflow of the two possessions that we have in Christ. So again, we have here two eternal possessions and three sequential exhortations that flow from those possessions. Possession number one, he essentially says in these verses, remember what you have. Possession number one, you have full access to God. You have full access to God. Look at verse 19 with me. Therefore, brothers, in light of Christ's sacrifice, in other words, in light of the sacrifice that has put away sin once and for all, in light of the fact that he opened up for us a new and living way, therefore brothers. Now, what we're gonna read here is for Christians. A Christian is someone who has come to grips with the fact that they are a sinner before God and being a sinner, they are guilty before God. They deserve hell, they deserve punishment. They deserve to be forsaken and abandoned by a good and holy God for all eternity. But in coming to the realization of who you are and what you are before God, you've also been enlightened regarding the way of salvation, that God in his mercy sent forth his son, born of a woman, to redeem all of his people. In other words, God sent forth a savior To live the life that his people could not live and then to die the death that his people should have died. He bore our sin on his body, in his body, on the cross, died our death, and then God, three days later, the Father, raised him up again. Because death could not keep him down because... He died in the place of his people. Had he died for his own sin, then he would have remained dead. But he had no sin of his own. The sin he died for was the sins of his people. And so God, after being pleased, after being propitiated, after being satisfied by the death of his own son and having put away our sin, he raised up his son and now calls all people everywhere to repent of their sin and to put their faith in the lord jesus christ and if they do that god offers them god grants them forgiveness he offers them and grants them eternal life he gives them eternal blessedness and the hope of a future resurrection and a future with god so this is for believers therefore brothers since or because we have confidence The word there means frankness, means boldness. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Since we have this, he says. And then he's going to get to the exhortations, but he's building upon the foundation of what we have in Christ, the two eternal abiding possessions we have. And that first possession is full access to God, confident access to God, bold access to God. Now I wanna say something about this word confidence here. This confidence isn't necessarily a subjective uh, confidence. In other words, it's not, it's not a, well, today I have confidence in God and uh, yesterday I really didn't have confidence in God. I, I didn't have confidence to, to, to go to him. No, friends, this confidence of which he is speaking is, 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 is an objective confidence. In other words, regardless of how you're feeling, regardless of how you've performed for God, regardless of how much you've prayed, how long you've prayed, regardless of how much you've read your Bible, you have confidence to enter the presence of God. Why? Because the way was paved, not with your tears, but as we read earlier in the letter to the Hebrews, our Lord's tears. The way to access the way into the presence of God was paved, not by your sinless life, but by Christ's sinless life. It wasn't paved by your death, praise be to God, it was paved by his death. The way into the presence of God was not paved by your performance. It was paved once and for all by Christ's performance. Therefore, we have confidence, regardless of where you're at. If you're in Christ, you have confidence to enter the the holy places, the presence of God. And so the objective confidence that we have in Christ feeds our subjective confidence, right? In other words, our positional confidence feeds our practical confidence. Knowing that you're in Christ, knowing that your sin has been put away, the sin that you're facing today, the sin that you're struggling with today, that has been fully satisfied. The punishment, I should say, of that sin has been fully paid, fully satisfied. You have access. When he offered his body on the cross, he paved the way into the Father's bosom, so to speak. We have access to God. And so we have confidence. There's a boldness there. That's a sweet word. To have access, but to have bold access? To have confident access? Some of you have seen the old picture of JFK in the Oval Office. I believe it was JFK. And you have the the most powerful man, perhaps in the world, in that day. And in the picture is, I believe, one of his children playing at his feet. What a picture of the believer and his relationship, and her relationship with the God of the universe. Here is the God of the universe who upholds the universe by his word. Who sends lightning storms and wind and rain and the one who stirs up the seas for his sovereign purposes. The one who controls all history. And scripture tells us that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2. We are seated there with him. As he upholds all of reality, we're there with him. And it's a boldness that he gives us there. He says, make yourself at home here because this is your home. Unload because I'm strong enough to bear every burden. It's a bold confidence. It's a bold access that we have. It's full and it's bold. It's frank. Since we have confidence to enter, to go into the holy places. Now, the holy places is obviously a a reference to the presence of God. Remember, he's used this several times to talk about the earthly holy place, the earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle. But all of that was patterned after the real one in heaven. We read also in Hebrews So we have confidence, boldness to enter, to go into the presence of God. How? Again, by the blood of Jesus. That's the basis of the confidence. That's that's why we have confidence. Again, it's not. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by our righteous deeds or by our religious performance or by our Radical repentance. No, he says, we have confidence to enter the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. That blood has cleansed us, and that blood has propitiated the righteous wrath of God. His righteousness demanded the death. Death, period. His justice demands that the sinner dies and is separated from him but we've heard already that the death he demands of us is a death that was experienced by Christ, by his blood. He opened up the way of confidence to God. He says, verse 20, by the new and living way, it's new in the sense of this is no longer the old system. That's his whole argument in this letter it's not through the sacrificial system. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's already established that. So this is new in that Christ has come in the fulfillment of every Old Testament type and shadow and every Old Testament prophecy. It's new and it's living. It's living. It's, it, the, the believer's relationship with God is living. It's, it's not something dead. Notice that he opened for us. The only time that word opened is used elsewhere in the letter to the Hebrews is when he talks about Christ inaugurating the new covenant. This way, this new and living way that he inaugurated. He opened up once and for all. He opened it up. He says he opened up this way for us through the curtain. Again, he's drawing imagery from the Old Testament tabernacle, the Old Testament temple, You can read about that in Exodus, the the latter chapters, where this curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place was where the Shekinah glory of God was manifested and only the high priest could enter there. Jesus takes us through the curtain and he adds here, that is, through his flesh. You remember when Jesus died, there on Golgotha's Hill. When his body was torn, literally, there was something else torn in the temple. It was the curtain, the veil, that separated the holy place from the most holy place. When he died, that, temp- that, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, he goes as far as telling us. In other words, it wasn't man from below tearing that curtain from the bottom to the top. It was God saying, the way to my presence, the way to me, is opened once and for all because my son has died. The lamb has died. The lamb has been slain. So we have full access to God. How? By the blood of Christ. We have confidence to enter the presence of God. When? Anytime we need any time we want. We don't have to, like in the Old Testament, wait or you know, be a high priest and wait once a year to go there. The Day of Atonement, no. We have full access, continued access, confident access, bold access because of the blood of Christ that flowed on our behalf. The blood of Christ that makes us clean. The blood of Christ that has propitiated the wrath of Almighty God. That's the basis of our confidence, and he says, this is what you have. By the way, there are several places in the letter to the Hebrews where he is reminding the believers of what they have. I find that tactic to be pastorally brilliant, by the way. How do you encourage people to maintain their hold on the gospel? By reminding them week in and week out what they have in Christ, what they have in Christ. Preaching that is deficient in calling to mind what we have in and through the perfect work of Christ creates a people who are antsy and who are more inclined to chase after the world, to, to have the world. But when you remind people week in and week out by expository preaching what they have in Christ, the hope they have, the inheritance they have, the new creation, that they have, that they will inherit the earth in that day, when you remind them what they have, they're less likely to go and chase after the trifles in this world. The fut- yeah, the futility of this world. He tells them in chapter 4, verse 14, they have a great high priest. He tells them in chapter 6, verse 17, that we have a sure and steadfast hope that goes beyond the veil into the presence of God. In chapter 13, verse 10, it tells us that we have an indescribable, glorious, nourishing meal. We have the right to eat at an altar that the current priesthood had no right to eat from. You remember in the Old Testament, the priests were entitled to partake of and eat of the sacrifices. Some offered to God and they were you know, entitled, they had the right to eat of those sacrifices. Well, what he says in chapter 13, verse 10, is, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. In other words, he's describing the benefits we have from eating of Christ. Constantly being nourished by the benefits that he offers us as our sacrifice, so he's reminding them they have a great priest, they have a sure and steadfast hope, an anchor for the soul. They have access to God. They have indescribable benefits. But he says, secondly, here there's a, another possession in verse 21. Not only does the believer have full access to God, but secondly, the believer has a great priest before God a great priest before God. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, again, he's building upon something here. He's gonna get into three exhortations in verses 22 through 25, but he's saying the basis of my exhortation is rooted in what you already have, what you have positionally, what you have that will never be taken away from you. You have full access to God, but secondly, here, you have a great priest before God. How great is he? Well, he's already spent the first 10 chapters describing his greatness. He's God's final revelation, he's the creator of the world, he's the upholder of the universe. He has a name more excellent than angels. All the angels worship him. He is the radiance. The outshining of the glory of God. That's how great He is. By the way, there is no access to God apart from a mediator. God has established that in the very beginning. Establishing the priesthood in the Old Testament, there was, there, there, I mean, you read through Leviticus, right? And you can easily get you know wrapped around the details, but the point of Leviticus, the screaming point of Leviticus is that the God we worship is a God who is entirely unapproachable by sinners. Their sin has to be paid for. The way has to be paved. There's no one that can just you know go to God. And that's oftentimes the message on so many church billboards and signs is Pray any time. Just go to God. No, like the gospel is here. The, the, gospel, the whole purpose of the gospel is that you don't have access to God. You need a mediator. And that perfect mediator is Christ. As 1 Timothy 2 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ, Jesus. You need a priest before God. But you need a priest that's sinless. He argues earlier on in this letter that a sinful priest has to, one, offer sacrifices for his own sins. Do you realize that your priest before God never had one sin to answer for? And so can entirely be a priest dedicated to your benefit and the glory of God. There, there was never any, well, how can I help Stephen, if I'm all messed up, there was never any of that. And there is never any of that in our Lord. He's a great priest, a holy priest, a perfect priest. Listen to how chapter seven describes this priest. He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners and he's exalted above the heavens he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so what does he do? He's got no sin to answer for. Well, chapter seven, verse 25 tells us what he's doing. Notice, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's a great priest. And notice, back to chapter 10, verse 21, he's not only a great priest, but he's over the house of God, which is a reference to the church. The church is the house of God. Believers are the house of God. We read earlier, we are God's house. Chapter three, verse six. If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house. And notice he says that he's over the house of God. Christ is the head of the church. There's no man, no pope that is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. We answer to Christ Christ. We take our direction from Christ. We will be accountable to Christ. We will answer to Christ. He is over, as our high priest, he is over the church. That phrase itself is sufficient to create and to maintain a God-honoring philosophy of ministry. In other words, how we operate within the realm of and the life of the church Flows from the reality that Christ is over the church. He is the head of the church. So everything has to be pleasing to him. We can't cater to people's emotional roller coasters. We answer to Christ. We can't cater to people's loves and longings. If they match, you know, the scriptures, then sure. If, they long, if they're longing for what Scripture tells us to long for, then sure. But ultimately, we don't twist the truth, bend the truth, compromise the truth just to satisfy or bring in a few more people to fill the church. Why? Because we are under our high priest. He's concerned as our high priest. You, you read in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that he's this, this high priest. You know, when John sees him there in chapter 1, he's, he's, he's dressed as a priest a glorified high priest, and what is he doing? That apocalyptic vision of Christ, what is he doing? He's walking in the midst of his church. He's aware of his church. He he knows every one of you in this place right now. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're worried about. He knows resolutions you've made. he, He knows everything about you. He knows what you're doing Later, he, 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 he's over his church. We're to be mindful of that. We're not to try to make the church look like the world in order to win the world. We are to be separate. We are to be God's people. We are to uphold his word above everything. Since we have a great priest over the church, over the house of God, it's God's house, Christ is the priest in this house. Since we have these realities, that's the foundation here. Remember what you have. You have full access to God and you have a great priest before God. And again, this is assuming that you're a believer. These possessions are yours if you've turned from your sins and have put your trust in Christ. Because the reverse is also true. If you are in your sin still, if you have not repented, if you have not believed in Christ, you have no access to God. When you pray, you're praying to yourself. When you pray, you're praying to the ceiling. When you pray, God is not listening to your prayers. If you are outside of Christ, you have no access to God. Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So many people are praying in vain and it's tragic and it's sad, but it's also arrogant to think that the sinner, to think that myself, that I can just make my own way to God. That's that's arrogance. The bad news is that we are so radically separated, alienated from God that we needed a perfectly qualified high priest to stand between us and God and to bring us into the presence of God. There was wrath on God's part and there was sin on our part. And Christ, as our high priest, takes care of both. He satisfies the wrath of God by his death on the cross and he cleanses us from sin and he justifies us and he takes his righteous robe and he gives that to us so that we have access to God and God's justice is appeased, it's satisfied. The sword of justice is put back into its sheath and God extends his hands of mercy and grace to his people because of our high priest. So that's what you have. But outside of Christ, apart from Christ, you have no access to God. Mary cannot save you. The saints that you pray to do nothing for you. I mean, if you, I, I, I had a pastor, uh, a first pastor. It was graphic what he said, but it's so true. I don't think that we can vomit in heaven, but he would say things like, you know, while you're, if Mary knew that you were praying to her, she'd be vomiting in heaven right now. Why is that? Why do we say that? Well, to get the point across it, one, Mary always and only pointed people to her son. The very last recorded words of Mary in the Bible, John chapter two, do what he says. That's what she said. Do what Jesus tells you to do. If any of the saints, which were all saints, by the way, right? Any believer in Christ is regarded as a saint. It means a holy one in the Greek it comes from the word agios, which is holy, we don't pray to saints. We don't pray to Mary. Mary can't save. She had to answer for her own sins. She called Christ. She called God her savior. She needed to be saved. Every saint in history, every believer in history has their own sin before God and Christ has removed that sin and brought them to God. Apart from Christ, there's no access to God. There's no priest before God. The good news is that if you have lived your life in idolatry, either worshiping idols or worshiping Mary or worshiping any other thing in the universe, you can be forgiven and cleansed. If you come to this one high priest, this one qualified high priest, he can bring you to God. That's the good news. So since we have this, since we have full access to God, since we have a great priest before God, then he moves on to lay forth three exhortations. So verses 19 through 21, remember what you have. And verses 22 through 25, remember what you're called to do. Remember what you're called to do. Number one, you're called to draw near in faith. Draw near in faith. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near. Let us approach. Where? Draw near to who? Well, obviously, draw near to God. Let us draw near. With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the first exhortation. Draw near in faith. The next one will be hold fast in hope. And the third one will be build up in love. But this first one, draw near in faith. You have confidence. The blood of Christ flowed for you, was spilled for you. Therefore, draw near approach God, come to him in faith. Now notice how he says how we're to draw near. Number one, with a true heart, a true heart. The word means genuine, something that's real as opposed to fake. In other words, if you're gonna draw near to God, you draw near one through Christ, but on your part, God requires truth. As Psalm 51 says, he desires truth in the inward being meaning no hypocrisy, no masks. We don't go to God pretending to be something or somebody that we are not. In fact, God resists hypocrisy. He resists the fake. He says, draw near with a true heart, a real heart, a heart screaming with need, a heart weary, Because of sin. Draw near as a real sinner before God. Draw near as a true needy person before God. Now, this has massive implications for how we pray and when we pray. I say how we pray because we're not to pray with any form of pretense or hypocrisy. God knows us, He wants you to ask, He wants you to seek, and He wants you to to knock at His door. He wants you to come as you are. But it also has implications for when we pray. You see, people think that they have to work up to a certain degree of holiness in order to finally pray. No, because of Christ, we can pray without ceasing. We can pray all the time. But we need to draw near with a true heart. No hypocrisy, no masks. There's no masks before God. Secondly, not only with a true heart, but draw near in full assurance of faith, full confidence in faith, full certainty of faith. Again, when the writer of Hebrews talks about faith, he's not necessarily talking about your unwavering faith. He's saying we have assurance before God we have confidence before God that is entirely is not dependent on your own assurance and your confidence. Christ paved the way that you can draw near with full assurance of faith. Full assurance of trust, that is. And notice, thirdly, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This is descriptive of God's work of regeneration that Christian preached on. Reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, where God promises to wash his people clean, to give them a new heart. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean, washed clean, cleansed clean thoroughly from an evil conscience. That's what was removed from us, was an evil conscience, a conscience that was fine with evil, a conscience that was okay, a conscience that was so in many cases, seared because of sin, a conscience that could go headlong into sin and not feel any guilt about it. And yet he cleansed us from an evil conscience. We have a tender conscience now, a sensitive conscience now. Some of you, when God found you, your conscience was so numb to sin, so hard to sin, that you could sin and and it didn't, you didn't feel anything anymore. It was numb. It had been seared as with a a hot iron so that the nerve endings were, were, were in a sense, cauterized. You couldn't feel anything. Christ cleansed us from an evil conscience. And fourthly, he says, our bodies have been washed with pure water, which is a clear reference to baptism. In other words, our baptism, we identified with Christ and we identified with his church. So, so, Draw near in faith. Draw near based on the blood of Christ. Draw near based on Christ's accomplishment on our behalf. Second exhortation, hold fast in hope. Look at verse 23. By the way, this is referred to as the lettuce patch in the letter to the Hebrews. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Verse 23, let us hold fast, hold firm, cling to the confession of our hope without wavering. In other words, these individual believers here were being tempted to turn away from Christ and he says, no, 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 let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Who's the confession of our hope? It's Christ. He is the one we profess. The word confession here is the word profession, your, your claim. The confession of our hope he says, without wavering, without faltering. In other words, we have because we have confidence, we have access to God, there's really no need to waver. The wavering is entirely us. But the hope we have in Christ is sure and steadfast. He established that back in chapter 6, verse 17. We have a sure and steadfast hope, an anchor for the soul. The anchor is never going away. Therefore, we're to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Notice the end of verse 23. For he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. By the way, what he's doing here is he's calling our attention to faith, hope, and love. Right? We're to draw near in faith. We're to hold fast in hope and we're to build up one another in love. So we have faith, hope, and love here. Hebrews 10, 23, he who promised is faithful. That's why we can hold fast. That's why we can, when trials come, that's why when tragedy strikes, that's why when temptation is lurking, we can hold fast in hope. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. You need those words to sink down deep into your heart. My God who promised is faithful. He has never gone back on his word. He has never lied. He has never led his people astray. He has never said something and not followed through. He who promised, well, what did he promise? He promised us eternal life. He promised us an eternal inheritance. He promised us a full and free forgiveness of sin. He promised us eternal access with him. He who promised all these things is Faithful. That's how Sarah endured chapter 11, verse 11. She knew that God was faithful. So let us hold fast in hope. And the third exhortation, he says, build up in love. Look at verses 24 and 25. The third, let us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You see, The whole letter to the Hebrews is written for the purpose of causing the Christians in his day and subsequently in our day to persevere, to press on, to press through. This is about the perseverance of the saints, the perseverance of the church. And notice what he calls our attention to here in verses 24 and 25. It's that perseverance is a community effort. Sanctification is a community effort. It's, you're not called to do this alone. You're not called to persevere alone. In fact, if you're alone in the Christian life, apart from the local church, you will not persevere. You will not hold fast. God intended for you to be part of and plugged into and vitally connected to the local church, actively involved in the local church. There are so many professing believers today who refuse to join and be involved in the local church. It's one of the reasons I've, you know, had, you know, struggled with, you know, broadcasting our sermons online every week, going live, because there's people who, I I don't ever want to be a tool, a means, an encouragement to those who refuse to join the church and just have church in their living room or watching us, you know, live here, but we, we, you know, we feature that because there are people in the church that when they can't make it, you know, they tune in. And that's a blessing. Thank God for technology. And of course, COVID didn't help either. It got people comfortable with having church at home, church by themselves. That's not church. The church is the gathered assembly. By definition, the church is the assembly, the called out assembly of God the assembly of Christ. He says, let us consider, give careful thought to how, by what means we can stir up one another to love and to good works. You see, this is not just about a verse telling us, hey, go to church. Hey, be plugged into the church. Hey, be actively involved in the church. It's telling us what to do when we gather. So, in other words, we can't say we're obeying this verse just because we show up here on Sunday mornings. We can't say, well, we're walking in, in, in the reality of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 because we're just here. And he says, you should be carefully considering, thoughtfully considering how, when you're with the believers, to stir up one another to love and good works. One of the things I'm thankful for is how long many of you stay after the service because you're doing what? You're stirring up one another to love. And you're stirring people up. You're provoking them to good works, which is essentially a godly life. You're stirring up one another to love and to a godly life. Oftentimes, the encouragement comes not just from the sermon, but from someone you've talked to after the sermon. An encouraging brother that came alongside you and 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 gave you an encouraging word, gave you an encouraging report. Consider how to stir up one another to love, that is to love God, to love one another, to love the truth, to love the church, and how to stir up one another to godly behavior. That's the good works. Verse 25 goes as far as saying not neglecting to meet together. The word neglecting is the same word Jesus used on the cross when he talked about God having forsaken him. He's saying, don't forsake the assembly. You will never persevere in the Christian life. You will never endure to the end if you have made a practice of forsaking the assembly. If you move on from this church, find another church to be a part of. Not neglecting to meet together, to assemble together, he says, as is the habit of some. You see, this problem of isolated Christians, isolated believers is not just a new, recent problem. It was happening even in that day. And probably this is a reference to the persecution that we read about in chapter 10 as well that the reason they were not identifying with the church is because, well, if I go there, I'm going to be marginalized by society. If they see me gathering with the church, I'm more inclined to receive persecution. If I identify with them, then they're going to lump me together with them. Well, yeah, we are one in Christ. So persecution should not keep us from gathering. The government should not keep us from gathering. We continue to meet. If the government puts any laws in practice or whatever that we cannot meet, then we have to obey God and disobey the government. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit, the practice of some, but encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. That means coming alongside of and giving people a boost. You see, church isn't just about you. The sermon isn't just about you. The fellowship isn't just about you. And so often, that's people's mindset. What can this church do for me? What did this sermon do for me? What does the music? How does it? How does it serve me? That's so opposite from. The teaching of the scriptures, church, the gathering is to be a place where believers are carefully considering how to stir up one another. They're strategizing. They're thinking of how when they see this person next week, that person having mentioned a struggle a week ago, maybe a a, a book or or, or, or a a sermon, sending them another sermon or, 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 or writing down some scripture, writing them a letter to stir them up, to love God, to hate sin, to love holiness, to pursue righteousness. See, it's not just enough to show up. We have to stir people. That's the call. We have to encourage one another, to build up one another by our words, by the truth, by our unity, by our fellowship, by our hospitality, encouraging one another. Church should be a place of encouragement. And you can't not be involved in the local church and then leave that local church and say, I never got anything from the church. I got nothing there. Well, if you don't give people a chance to pour into you, if you don't give people a chance to stir you up, then you have no right to complain about not ever getting anything from the fellowship we're to encourage one another, and notice how the phrase ends, how the, how the paragraph ends, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, friends. This tells us that we need encouragement. There is no one here that can ever say, "I don't really need encouragement." I have, I have a strong enough walk. No, if the church, the gathering exists to encourage you, it tells you that you ought to humble yourself and be willing to admit that you need to be encouraged. Pride says, I don't need to be encouraged. Humility says, I need encouragement. I, I, I might have blind spots in my life. I might have this in my life. This might come to me this week by the providence and, and, and merciful hand of God. This might come down this week. I need to be encouraged. And all the more, as you see the day, capital D, drawing near. What day is this? This is the day of the Lord. The Old Testament prophets foretold of the day of Yahweh, the day of God, the day of the Lord. In the New Testament, it's called the day of Christ. It's a day of punishment for the ungodly and a day of bliss for the godly, a day of relief and final rest for the people of God. It's drawing near. It's drawing near. It's a pretty, there's a pretty sweet, you call it an inclusio here. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. Why? Because the day is drawing near to us. Let us draw near to the throne of God as we anticipate the day drawing near to us. The day when Christ will descend from heaven with a shout, with the cry of command, with innumerable angels, on white horses coming to relieve the people of God. The day is drawing near. Why do we gather? Because the day is drawing near. Why do we draw near to the throne of grace? Because the day is drawing near. Why do we stir up one another to love and good works? Why do we encourage one another? Because the day is drawing near. This is almost, it almost has a spirit of just hold on, right? Just hold on, hold fast The day is drawing near. Encourage one another. In fact, when Paul in 1 Thessalonians uh, wrote about the second coming of Christ, he says, we will ever be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Christ is coming. Christ will have the final word. Christ is the final word, Hebrews chapter one, and he will have the final word on that last day. He will call his people to himself. Receive them in the glory. Bring them into the Father's house. Our faith will be turned to sight. Therefore, remember what you have, Christian, this morning. You have full access to God. Not based on your performance. It will never be based on your performance. You're to come with a true heart. No hypocrisy. You have a great priest over the house. In charge of the house. Responsible for the house isn't it good to know that christ is responsible for you and he who promised is faithful he will surely bring to pass everything he has promised the, the work he began in us he'll finish it many of us struggle with finishing things we start right how many of you always finish a book that you start always always finish a book No, we struggle christ he finishes what he starts He finishes what he begins. He who promises faithful. So you have full access to God. You have a great priest. Therefore, draw near to him continually in faith. Therefore, hold fast to the profession, the confession of your hope without wavering. The God who saved you is the God who will glorify you. And in light of what you have, do not forsake the assembling of the saints. Don't neglect to meet together. So many people feel like they have to have it all together in order to come to church on Sunday morning. No, come to church because most of the people in that place are, or I should say many of them, are feeling the same way you are. I don't have it all together. Well, God knows that. That's why he ordained this gathering for us. We need to be encouraged. We need to be stirred up. What a, what a, what a picture here of the need to be stirred up. Right. We, we become Stale. We become stagnant. And the gathering is intended to stir us up. So I urge you to carefully consider your brothers and sisters in this room. Carefully consider throughout the week how to stir them up. Listen to language of perhaps a struggle here. Listen to the language of past hurt there. And consider when you gather with them how to stir them up. To love God, to hate sin, to pursue righteousness, to pursue godliness, and how to stir them up in light of the coming day of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're without Christ today, I have good news for you, and it's that you can be forgiven and cleansed from your sins and reconciled to God if you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Let's stand together.